on this episode of AvTalk. The first A380s to fly passengers find out their flying days are over. Heathrow moves one step closer to a third runway. Singapore Airlines officially announces the return of nonstop flights between Singapore and Newark. And Captain Ken Hoke fills us in on how he gets gas for his airplane. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello and thank you for counting, Ian. I've, I've lost track. <laughs> I have a, it, It's a little tally on my arm that I keep going. Ooh, ooh just, just uh, cut that right in. <laughs> it's been a, a busy two weeks, a lot of odds and ends you know, happening in, in the world of aviation. And I think we should start with the most important story of the last two weeks is that you voluntarily went to Newark Airport and didn't actually fly anywhere. I did. I only had to take a subway, a different subway, and a public bus to get there each way. But it was interesting. I went to go check out the United Polaris Lounge at Newark, which is finally opened as of yesterday, actually the 4th. And it's very nice. It's very similar to the one you have out in Chicago, but a bit smaller, bigger. Now, the one in Chicago opened, it was like 30 years ago or something yeah, like that at this point. It's been a long time. They've made super slow progress. They managed to open up one in San Francisco a couple weeks ago and Newark now. But they're on a bit of a roll, and it's very nice. A huge upgrade from the United Clubs of the past, which were not great. Well, I mean, you had your, you know, your pretzels and your pretzels, pretzels and carrot sticks and dry hummus. But now this is a, a whole other level of all, all sorts of nice stuff and junk. But I don't want to give them too much free advertising. No, but but it brings up a bigger point in, in that that U.S. airlines have always, I don't know, about always because they were. The first, so they weren't behind anybody. But then they kind of quickly lost ground as far as the the off plane amenities, the niceties on the, the ground, the nicet- in in all senses of the word. And over the past couple of years, I, I don't know whether it was some sort of dawning realization or if it was just kind of maybe we should do this. But U.S. airlines have have put a lot into. Kind of the 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 niceties, if, if we want to call it that, beyond the plane, but also, I mean, also on the plane. But it it seems to me that there's there's a lot of catch up being played. Yeah, and they're they're trying to do it as quickly as they can. They they've finally started doing stuff like uh, pre flight dining because nobody wants to have a, a 10 p.m. departure to Heathrow and then only sit down to eat dinner, which is just absurd on a, on a four and a half hour, five hour red eye flight so yeah so you get pre-flight you get one hour is, of sleep yeah exactly clearly the the my favorite part is pre-flight dining which is something american and united are both really starting to do delta kind of sort of not really well i mean you know one airline does something and then eventually they all end up doing it it's so. usually delta to do it first and the that, other two that's follow. true but that's delta true. in this case has not whatever Del- delta on. if you're listening <laughs> that's how, definitely how they make their decisions. That, they they yep. listen to this podcast and then make uh, you know massive commercial decisions based on our recommendations. Definitely. So in today's news, A three eighties they're going to get parted out. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, only a, a couple. A couple. Yeah, not all. All of them. Done. All of them. The, the yeah, entire. The, the world we're we're done with this experiment and no no more. Two hundred and sixty some odd planes. We're we're done with it. 
serial number three and serial number five, which were the first and second to to go to Singapore 10 years ago and enter service. The former registrations 9VSKA and SKB, those went back to their lesser, Dr. Peters, which I think is one of the best names for an air airplane leasing company. Yeah, it's, it's a little weird. When, 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 we, when we first talked about this a couple episodes ago, I had to double check and make sure that it was real. It, not just like some guy. Some, yeah, it's like some guy, you know, like some inf, late night infomercial. Come on down to Dr. It's Peters. It's the Dr. Peters group. It's not just some guy not, yeah, who made too much money being a dentist or something. Exactly. And and they have, their leasing, their leasing ideas are a bit different because they, each airplane is an investment portfolio. And and so I was reading up on this a little bit today, and it, it's interesting to me. And I would love to maybe we'll we'll be able to have Gavin back at some point to to talk about this, uh, our, our resident numbers guy, and how they structure those deals where people invest in the aircraft itself. And so they decided after trying to find uh, after trying to find somebody to take these planes, these two planes after Singapore was done with them, uh, they couldn't find anybody. And so they decided that if they sell all of the usable parts and then recycle the rest of it, uh, they'll make about 45 million, uh, us dollars. And that return would be more than what they would expect by leasing it back They've out. Made their money back and then some, but yeah. now that I'm also looking into this Dr. Peters group, they don't even have that many aircraft. They, according to their webpage, they only own nineteen aircrafts. It's and it's a weird uh, assortment. It's uh, five Air France A three eighties, four from Singapore, three Emirates triple seven three hundred ERs, two Norwegian seven eight eights, two Thai seven eight eights, two Virgin America A three nineteens, which I guess are Alaska and. One singular Emirates triple seven two hundred LR, totaling nineteen aircraft. How how do you take a part of, of one Emirates triple seven two hundred LR? That's bizarre. I, I mean, the idea, I guess, is that they have an, a, a investors who say, you know, take our money and lease out this plane. And I guess to, it makes sense if you're looking for, for a rather stable investment over a, a medium period of time, it's a pretty – I mean, I'm not an expert at this by any stretch of the imagination, but based on their portfolio, it seems like a, a pretty decently conservative investment. Now, if you do know something about this, and we're going to get in touch with Gavin and see if he can come on and try and explain some of this in, in English that we'll understand. But drop us a note at podcast at fr24.com because the aircraft leasing business is something that I think in general, very few people understand, even yeah. people in the industry. And, and this company particularly is fascinating. They also have uh, 87 ships, totaling 10.4 million dead weight tonnage. And let's see, real estate wise, they have 52 properties, mostly hotels and retirement homes. So this... This leasing company is, is is different than your GE Capital Group, I think. Yeah, yeah, and, and so they decided that they're they're just gonna they're not gonna break apart the planes, you know, just you know, scrap them total and everything like that. They're gonna take apart because they're you know still enough 
A380s flying that they're going to need parts. Valuable they're, parts. They're going to take exactly all of the usable parts out. Uh, most and then, importantly and most expensively, the engines have already been leased back out. Yeah, so they're, they're those, gone. Those, those are long gone. They've been leased out. They will sell them, I believe they said, in 2020. So these airplanes are engineless. They can no longer fly unless they somehow miraculously acquired four A380 engines. But uh, the most valuable part of the airplane is they're already gone. Yeah, so somebody um, was flying out of uh, out of that particular where they're stored in in uh, in Tarbes, and, and they some somebody sent us a photo of the departing. Oh, I was going to say was, his name, but I'm, I'm going to butcher the hell out of it, that one. Wolf, it was right down. Huff, Huff, Huffwich. Yeah, sure. We'll we'll put it in the show notes. But it shows what is it the the two A380s and then a couple maybe three or four old Iberia A340s and and a few other planes kind of you know packed tightly in, in a storage configuration. Here. Yeah, there's definitely uh, some A340-300s. Looks like a Saudia 747400, a random Cathay A340-300, and an Air France 320, just kind of chilling. Yeah, and and there's a a dark red that might be AirAsia. Yeah, that's probably AirAsia. I don't know who those red tail A340s are. Maybe that's uh, Swiss? It could be. I thought those might be Iberia. I don't know. Oh yeah, that's that's totally possible and probable actually. But we'll we'll put the picture in the show notes because it's it's fascinating to see how that everything works as far as storage is concerned, but it's also pretty depressing to see those planes just kind of sitting there without their engines. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens because I mean, the, the, I guess the important thing to note is that these A380s were not great. No, uh, they were as far as production quality was concerned, because because like like the, the early model seven eight sevens and and the early model you know triple seven everything there there are production teethings, and and these were more I was going to say more inefficient, more weighty, but uh, yeah, more weighty than than later models. So it'll be interesting to see the difference between an airline not wanting these particular aircraft versus an airline not wanting a three eighties. At all, on and the we got market. this next question a bunch of times today. Does that mean HiFly is not getting its A380s? And no, that's not what it means. Singapore retired four aircraft; two are being scrapped. The other two are still slated for HiFly sometime soon. Yeah, so they'll they'll take one this year, I think they said, and then one likely next year. So that that'll be that'll be interesting to coming see coming to a Norwegian flight near you. If if Norwegian's still around, see they they work <laughs> their way into every single episode. But you're you're coming into it. My usual pessimism. I like exactly. It. I my the the more I look at this, the the more pessimistic I get. Mm-hmm. I actually I actually had family flying Norwegian this week, and it, they they booked their tickets without any input from me whatsoever. We've been having this running gag in the office about who is stupid enough to book Primera Air Transatlantic right now. And people keep saying, oh, I want to book it. It seems like a great deal. And then I just send them a picture of planes with no engines and then cancellation notices of entire routes. And say, I told you so. And kind of like Norwegian, but much worse. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been rough. I mean, they had they had a national Airline 757 running what was supposed to be, you know, the, their York. flagship route. Yeah. So it was, I mean, pretty incredible. And, well, and you know, start an airline without, I mean, kind of like Norwegian, start yeah. an airline without any planes. Yeah. Well, speaking of pessimism, let's talk about Heathrow's 
third runway. Well, I, the pessimism is over. Is it? No, not at all. No, because we're, stop we're me if you've heard closer. this news yeah, right. five hundred times before. This, so, so to to kind of back up and and discuss, I guess the what actually happened today. There was a a government cabinet ministers in the UK backed the plan to construct a third runway at Heathrow, which which has been under consideration for for on fifty years now. So I mean this is not you know new and they kept pushing back the votes and they kept pushing back the decisions till after the next elections and after then the next Brexit elections. happened yeah so so all of this was I mean up in the air to say the least <laughs> and I see it did there aha uh-huh. and now there's going to be another vote in Parliament uh, before July of this year. Before the middle of July this year, and hopefully that will give the plan some not closure, but you know, move it forward a little bit more. I mean, the, you know, the the latest plan has been in process since 2012. So I mean, it, it's one of those things where you know, expanding an airport or doing anything to an airport takes years and years and years. Says the guy sitting in Chicago who's gone through eight master plans and you know ninety-seven different runway configurations and moving a cemetery. So I mean, you know, it all takes a while. But th- this is just you know one of those things where it's like from an aviation perspective, I think everyone's been like, can can we get the show on the road? We would like to you know expand Heathrow at our earliest convenience, and we're running out of time. Either do it or don't already. But this yeah. this one's. A major, major project since Heathrow is kind of built in on every side. They're going to have to quite a bit of work to do to squeeze a third runway in. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I like. I, I think you said earlier. I won't be convinced until shovels are in the ground. Yeah, and so, so the the plan itself is to add a. It's called the Northwest Runway. It would go to the north and west of the current right offset. Uh, yeah, offset of the the current, so it would be parallel to the other two runways, but it would be north and west of the current terminal complex. So that it would, and and I'm not exact. I don't have the exact figures about how many homes and businesses and and things like that have to be moved. But but there's precedent for this. I mean, you know, looking at you know Chicago for one, you know O'Hare's expansion moved upwards of, of 500 homes and a couple hundred businesses, and and that took. Years of you know legal maneuvering and and actual construction studies and things like that. So there's all sorts of environmental studies that still need to come through and and all sorts of things like that. But it, it seems to be that they've made their decision, or at least they've made the decision to make a decision. And so hopefully that uh, by they're saying what by twenty. 30 something 2026 i think 2026 this would be uh in in the works right so <laughs> i i don't know uh <laughs> i mean yeah like like you said i mean when shovels are in the ground then then i think it's something to to get interested about but you know something that will obviously be a big feature you know, in any discussion of, of London, you know, air traffic. I mean, London's the Heathrow is the biggest, or busiest two runway airport in the world. Gatwick's the biggest single runway in the. I mean, it, it's crazy to me how how many flights are being packed into that airspace, and and how the. I mean, obviously, adding a runway is a huge 
local issue, but they they've got to do it. Yeah, but on by the same token, there's a lot of pessimism again. That sure, Heathrow's always congested. You always have holding patterns, 15, 20 minutes to get in. Uh, some people say, yeah, this will alleviate that, the third runway, and you'll be able to have flights come straight in. But then they'll probably just increase the number of overall flights going into Heathrow and you'll end up in the same position. Yeah. That, I mean, that's that, and that was one of the big concerns when they, when they added runways in, in Chicago here is, is that, you know, you're, the available runway space becomes the capacity, right? You know, if you're you not going to reduce come. exactly. You're reduce not going to reduce demand delays. Is something that is always a problem. You build yeah. more lanes on a highway, and you'll have the same amount of traffic because people think there's that much more room for them. So, I mean, that that's one thing to to be interested. But but part of this is also about growing capacity. So that's it, it goes both ways. I mean, I, I think that the induced demand is something that. That is something to be concerned about, but the airspace structure can hopefully be evolved to handle that. But I mean, it's just something that I, I think they still have to do in in a sense that, I mean, you're running out of places to put these planes and the demand's going to grow anyway. So if you disagree, because I know that this is a, a very particular topic. And and I'm not just talking about Heathrow, but I'm talking about airport expansion in general. Drop us a note at podcast at fr24.com. We, we would love to hear. I know Jason and I are kind of both on the same side of this. So we would love to hear somebody who's on the other side or, or has a, a different opinion. And, and we would love to, uh, to hear from you and bring that up in, in a future episode. Let's move on to, let's go to St. Martin. I like St. Martin. I like St. Martin too. But the, the, Canadian Transportation Safety Board released a report this week on the WestJet flight that went a bit too low is the, I guess, very conservative way of saying Quite that. Quite a bit too low. Quite a bit too low. So, so Jason, I'll, I'll let you explain this one a little bit. Oh, um, I, I definitely have the report open in front of me now. Um, <laughs> reading it from memory, basically last year, a WestJet 737 uh, – all they really have is 737s, I guess a few 76s, but it was on approach to St. Martin, which is in the Caribbean, where the weather is in the summer can be very variable, very dynamic. They were on approach. They hit a nasty thunderstorm squall as they were on on final, which greatly reduced visibility. And there's a pretty striking video of the aircraft being very, very low to the water way before they even reached the beach, throttling up the engines, gunning them and going around, coming back around for a second landing, which was um, your textbook approach the second time around. So the report came out today, which detailed everything that happened. And it's not all blaming the pilots. There's a lot of contributing factors as there is almost in every incident. In this case, there was actually quite a bit of blame for air traffic control and the airport alike that the Airport was not relaying weather information to the pilots at the time. They didn't say, hey, there's a thunderstorm on the field and visibility is greatly reduced. At the same time, they had the field lighting at very low settings. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but Ian, we were talking about it today earlier. It was like 3% and 10% or something of max uh, brightness. Yeah, yeah the, the lights were set to, yeah, 3 three and 10%, I think three it was the- 3 and 10%, so the, extremely the low. The approach lights and the, uh, and the Pappy. Pappy. So um, there's no ILS system at, at St. Martin. They just don't have the room for that. 
So they were doing pretty much a visual approach and they, they mistook the Senesta Hotel that's offset to the left of the hotel for the runway. And when they did some simulations, the hotel actually does kind of really look like a runway when you can't see the runway. So that was a recommendation that they put into place with that they made to the government of St. Martin to really shore up the regulations about runway lighting, how to properly manage that and to communicate to uh, pilots about current conditions. But all of that was kind of put on hold when the island nearly got obliterated by a hurricane. They're only kind of recovering now. So all those new regulations or recommendations are, are on hold, unfortunately. But we'll put a link in the show notes to the report and you can read it for yourself. Yeah, it's it's actually a very interesting reading because the thing that struck me is that – and we talked about this earlier too – is that the pilots did certain things. The, the controllers did certain things and there were mitigating factors all – or contributing factors all around. You know, and, and it's the aviation's a team sport. So when something goes wrong, you know, it's not just it's often not just one thing where, you know, the pilots did this or the air traffic controllers did this or, you know, this happened. It's there was a, a set of circumstances and then those circumstances changed and there wasn't good communication about the change in the circumstances. And all of that kind of came together to to cause this bad situation. Right. And the um, air traffic controllers at St. Martin actually control the airspace for quite a bit of area around the island. They also control other airports that don't have their own air traffic control. So the controller may have just been busy talking to other aircraft at other airports or in other parts of the region and just wasn't able to get the information to WestJet pilots in time. But uh, it's in the past now. There was no reason to, I guess, I don't know where I'm going with that, but just read the report. All right. We'll put that report in the show notes. Also in the past now, because the power is back on, Hamburg sat in the dark for a little bit this weekend. Yeah. All Sunday, they pretty much threw in the that towel. Was very, very interesting. Hamburg Airport, uh, which is a very, very busy and at times overcapacity airport, though I guess probably not on a Sunday, they lost power in the morning and it didn't come back on until Monday. Which is yeah. a super long time. Yeah, from from ten a.m. the suspension of flight operations lasted from ten a.m. to ten a.m. on Sunday to six a.m. on Monday, and the airport said that the the failure was caused by damaged insulation of a copper cable, resulting in a powerful short circuit that also affected numerous adjacent cables, and it happened right in the middle of the electricity supply systems for the entire airport. Mm, and, where have I heard this before recently? So so this sounds familiar. It does. It does. Atlanta. Huh. Hmm. Very, very similar where a a short or a fire took out the primary and secondary and all the other backups and just plunged the entire airport into darkness for a very extended period. But uh, the <laughs> I love the press release that Hamburg put out. It's an airport I've been to. I'm there quite regularly, but the press release was just so German where it was just like, yes, we have a primary and backup source and a secondary source, but we cannot operate on the secondary source alone. So we're just shutting down. I'm like, why would you even have a secondary source then? But I don't know. Yeah, I yeah, it, yeah. If you can't operate, there there has to be a backup solution, 
But if the backup solution is the only solution available, then they have to stop operations. It, it's still unclear to me exactly the the levels of redundancy that we're talking about here and, and the, the ESA requirements because you have to have two independently powered electricity supply systems for flight operations. But if you only have two to begin with, if one fails, you have to stop operations. Right. If, they, if you only have two, you really only have one. If you have two, you the second will, will help you wind down operations and shut everything down. But essentially, that means you don't have redundancy. Right. It, it was very unclear to me exactly. And, and it might be a, you know, a translation issue or or something. But it was very unclear to me how exactly they were operating these things. Be, because if, if one goes down, the other is up, but they can't use it. So it, is there like a grace period? I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't this is this is the peak of of German yeah, efficiency and and weird regulations that I don't want to get into right now. All right, <laughs> that's not getting into German regulations in this particular episode. We'll be back in a future episode with all German regulations. No, we won't. No, we won't. All right, let's organize our lives like this then. Let's talk about what happened to American Airlines Flight 1897, and then we'll take a break. And in the bottom half of the show, we'll talk about a bunch of new stuff that's happening. This week, from San Antonio to Phoenix and American Airlines A319 operating as Flight AA1897 went through a particularly vicious hailstorm and had some significant damage to its radome and its windshield, as we've talked about in, in past hail incidents, became opaque. And, and so the pilots were basically flying flying the aircraft on instruments alone with, without any ability to see outside of the forward-facing windshield. It's a good thing that the A319 is, is an instrument-operated aircraft, or you can operate it on instruments aircraft, and they landed safely in El Paso, or diverted safely to El Paso after uh, after suffering some significant damage, uh, pictures of which we will put in the show notes because it's a, a pretty pretty startling photo the first time I saw it. Yeah. The radome, as normally happens in this hail versus airplane situation, is obliterated, but there's not much to a radome. Windshields totally smashed up, and that's pretty much visually what you can see in the pictures, but I'm sure the fuselage has taken quite a beating. Yeah, the the leading edge of the wings and and the engines and and probably the the vertical stabilizer and the horizontal stabilizer took some damage too. So it'll it'll take some time to to repair the aircraft and get it back into service. But but I'm sure that's exactly what they'll do. Well, time to write it off. <laughs> hey, if Delta can bring their their hell damaged seven four seven back, I thought that went straight to the desert. Yeah, but they they you know repaired it enough to to fly it to the to desert. fly to the desert. <laughs> they, they didn't just leave it. Ooh, what were they going to do in Hong Kong? Roll it into the roll it into the water? Yeah, I mean that remains to be one of my lifelong you know dreams to see or an aircraft for time. Just roll it into the water. Yeah, it's like, that, that would be what, nice. What United should have done with the seven four seven. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this was an eighteen year old A three nineteen. I mean. Could it be at the end of its life? Maybe if it was if it was not an a, a United States based carrier, I would say of course, of course, it's at the end of its lifetime. But it is a United States based carrier, and so it, it'll probably last another ten years. Maybe, maybe whenever the depending on when the next uh, next heavy maintenance is. 
That's true. American does have quite a number of old aircraft. I think some of the ex-US Airways aircraft are actually quite old. The A320s date back to 98. And this one was 99. So this is one of their oldest aircraft, actually. Well, there you go then. So, I mean, who, who knows what they'll end I, I think they'll end up repairing it. But I, I don't know how long it's you know slated to, to fly for the, for the airline. Yeah, well, this aircraft had GoGo 2KU8 installed on it, so it wasn't going to be retired anytime in the near future. And I wonder how that radome fared. I should, <laughs> I should talk to them. Yeah, find out uh, find out how it did. So th- there was no de-icing solution involved, so it, it should be okay. Ooh, inside baseball joke there. But yeah, no, every everyone it landed safely. Everyone ended up being okay, so that's the important thing. The the thing that that bugged me about this particular incident that bugs me about nearly every incident here we go is a bunch of outlets found old pictures of hail damaged planes and posted them as fact that it was the american flight from this week in a couple places that should know better and i won't name names name uh, no 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 name, I won't name them names name and vari- shame for a variety of reasons burn but, those but bridges I, I will say that there were a, a number of outlets that that did this and and a few that should have known better especially since it was easy to you know do a google search of hail damaged plane and come up with these the images that they were showing and see that they were from 2015 that would require work though I yeah well I I feel like if you're if you're a news outlet you should do work and yet here we are and yet so, moving on moving on let's take a quick break and we'll come back and a bunch of new stuff has happened and we're also going to hear from Captain Ken Hoke at the end of the show who has gas and we're <laughs> going to hear a lot more about that and context is important here uh, I'm giving no context until the end of the show. We're going to take a quick break. Jason and I are going to recompose ourselves and we will be back in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back. We have recomposed ourselves and I think we should continue. Go on. All right. <laughs> the the big news over the past couple of weeks as far as new stuff goes is – well, it's not really news because we all knew it was going to happen, but now there's a schedule. Singapore Airlines has announced that they are going to put their A350 ultra long range. Ultra. Ultra. The ULR is going on the Singapore Newark route once again. Ah, oh, not so, JFK. Disappointing. Not JFK. So so that route is back in action. Discontinued since what, 2013? No, I don't think it's been that long, has it? Uh, maybe not that long. Huh. I should have looked that up. Yeah. Anyway, Whatever. it's been a few years. Starts it back up October 11th. Starts back up October 11th, uh, three times weekly and then goes to to daily on the 18th, I want to say. Yes. Once, once they get another plane in the rotation. But it used to be operated on the A340-500. The rarest of the... the- A340s. Absolutely. And so that went away because it was costing them who knows how much money. Four engines for long haul for less profit. Yes. And and so now the the two engines for more profit we'll we'll think of a catchy slogan oh, for that. Wait, you were right. Yeah, 2013. Aha. Sorry. Have your moment. <laughs> 
they're bringing back the the Newark Singapore route, uh, nineteen hours, uh, uh, <laughs> in a premium economy and business class configuration. Yeah, so they're reintroducing premium economy. The A three forty five hundred towards its later years only had business class. It was what a hundred business class seats, something like that. So the uh, ULR will have yeah. sixty seven business, ninety four premium economy. And I, I don't know. I, I I like fancy flying, but it's a lot of time on an airplane because 18 hours, 45 minutes flying time is really more like 20 hours on the aircraft in total when you count boarding and taxiing and the inevitable, oh, no, there's no gate at Newark. And- you know, I mean, and, and, that's a, and that's on departure if, you know, the weather's okay in Newark. Right. It's 20 plus hours in an aircraft is, is a lot of time. Yeah. I mean, your other options are, you know, go east to Frankfurt and then and then on to Singapore or what, go west and do Los Angeles or- Yep. San Francisco. San or- Francisco down. Uh, and But then you're, you've got another stop. So, yeah. I mean, Singapore, it, it, Tokyo, San Francisco, New York. Right. Or, or I mean, or you can hop on United and do the- do the nonstop flight. There's got to be a market. I mean, they wouldn't be bringing it back if there wasn't a market for it. I just, I just don't know. I understand people having to take this flight because it's actually saving them time. I don't know anyone yeah, who's the, the really going to. The people who do take this flight take it often and they love it because it gets them from New York to Singapore at, at faster than any other option. And it's one of those flights where the people on board, they know each other, that they, they take it so often. It's kind of like the Concorde was in a way. That people get on board, they say, oh, hey, Jim, oh, hey, Frank. They just know each other on board. And if you're commuting between Singapore and New York on any frequency, this is a dream for you. Yeah, and and it, it, always, it always gets me when, when you talk about commuting. And, the, and there, there are people who commute between Newark and Singapore. <laughs> I don't want to and, commute between Newark and New York. <laughs> And that, and that always amazes me. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, think of think of it this time. You know, you're barely doubling the time it takes to get from your apartment to Singapore. Right. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> and this this schedule is a little funky too. Departs Singapore twelve forty a.m. Arrives in Newark five thirty in the morning, which is not great on either end. I don't think. Departs Newark early a.m. nine forty five and gets in five fifteen. That's the Northern winter hours. So that's October, late October through late March. So when it initially starts, it'll leave Singapore 11.35, getting in Newark 6 a.m. So not not great. That That's an early arrival, but hey, you could get in the ground 6 a.m., hit the lounge and go straight to the office by 9 after a 20-hour flight. I, I mean, at some point, you would assume that you're getting some sleep on the plane. I, I would hope so. I mean, otherwise, that's a that's an extremely long twenty hours. Yep, and, and I mean it, that doesn't even take into account you know the hours you spend getting to the airport, you hours you spend getting from the right. Because if it's a a midnight ish departure, that means you've probably already been up for an entire day, more than that, even more than your typical day. Yeah, so I mean, you, you get in, you you have your day, you go to the airport, you get on the flight. Is there a meal, sir? I mean, you just go to sleep. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. That'd be interesting. 
don't well, know. We it, should take we should take the flight. And we find should out. take the flight and find out. Right. I will sit in business class, for and science. you can sit in premium economy, and no, we'll do it for oh, science. I can guarantee you that will not be happening. And then, and then we'll switch on the way back. It'll be fun. Mm, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> I'll sit in the cargo hold. Wait, Perfect. no, wait. Tell me if it's pressurized. <laughs> I. Yes, it is. I can tell you right now. Yes, it is. So the the interesting thing about the ULR, because we'll we'll talk about you know the actual plane for a minute, they're not adding more fuel tanks that to to make the you know to give it the increased range or anything like that. Tell me more. They're, they're taking advantage of existing space that already exists and basically certifying the aircraft to carry more fuel. They're also not putting hundreds of economy passengers on board. There's also that, yeah. but they still need more fuel. So it's basically they're taking away weight. It'd be interesting to see what the actual weight differential is because you think that the business class seats and premium economy seats are going to weigh more than than the economy seats. So what what's the weight? Dis- I, I'm sure you you don't even it out. But I wonder what that weight differential is. Yeah, it's, it's also in a first class on this aircraft, which is something Singapore has on most of their long haul aircraft. Because I don't know if it's it's a market decision or that those seats are just so heavy that they don't want them on board. I mean, in in my in my mind, I think it's probably both. J- just because it's it's easier to operate. I mean, it's easier to operate two classes and and do it well than to add that third class and then have to have that. You know, ultra premium experience that Singapore you know tries to offer. Yeah, Qantas made some interesting weight saving decisions on their seven eight seven to fly ultra long haul from Perth to uh, London. They did odd things like only providing one power outlet for two passengers in premium economy, which seems like a, a an ultra stingy move because it's premium economy. I want my own damn power outlet, but it's just part of the weight savings. I mean, yeah, it, it, that's. Interesting decisions to make, and I, I think it was um, Willie Walsh over at, at IAG said the British Airways or at British Airways, British Airways is not not interested today in doing what Qantas is doing with it with a nonstop or anything like that because they're 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 focused on what they're doing, you know, making their one stop. So it's interesting. Not given an experience, do we make those changes for the the longer flights, or do we continue to to stop somewhere and offer? You know, an existing product. Right. All right. Let's blitz through these last few things. All right. right. Let's do it. Air China is going back to North Korea. This is a a regular flight that they operate between Beijing and and Pyongyang. And they suspend it every once in a while, usually for a couple months during the winter. This time, it's been suspended for a little bit longer. Usually, it gets suspended from November to March. This time, it's been November to June. They're back on the 6th of June, which is tomorrow. So if you're looking to book a flight from, from Beijing to Pyongyang, you can do that once again. I believe it's a thrice weekly flight. I, I think it's a 737-700. That doesn't even yeah. have winglets. Oh, I know. Poor, Cute little thing. Or wingletless. Uh, it operates Wednesday, Friday. Sunday, and then and then who cares? Move on. And then Tuesday. Let's go. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of almost every other day. Air Italy uh, had its first branded flight to New York. So as Air Italy, um, so ex Meridiana. 
that was fun. Air Belgium, which in the last episode got their uh, overflight permission to fly over Russia. They inaugurated service to Hong Kong. Jason, you said there were 9,000 people on the flight? Uh, 15. Okay. 15. Less than two full rows of economy on an A340 is uh, not great. They blamed it on uh, basically that it was a, a what was it like a dry run that they were doing, which is nonsense because it was a bookable flight on their own. What they said it was a technical flight to control all the procedures and refine the final details. The second starts uh, Wednesday, June sixth, which would be tomorrow, which is the real maiden flight. So we'll see if they can fill more than two rows of economy this time. There, uh, there might be thirty people on that one. Wow. Well, they blame the fact that they're not bookable in the GDS, which is like Saber, Saber, and all the places where travel agents book flights. Which turns out is really important if you're a niche, weird little new Belgian startup flight. Huh. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah. Maybe they'll be able to put some passengers on it this time. I I wish them the best of luck. Good luck Mostly because I like how the plane looks. Yeah, I and, don't want uh, them to fail. I just think that they're going to. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Let's see. What else? Oh, the first 777 has flown its – has very, very likely flown its last flight. On the 1st of June, a uh, currently registered BHNL, the Cathay Pacific 777, 200 flew from Hong Kong to uh, Xiamen and is now at the Heiko hangar or parking area awaiting disposition. We, we reached out to Cathay to find out what might happen to the plane. Uh, Nothing but, good. But we haven't haven't heard yet. Don't know if it's going to get you know continue on or or if it's just going to get taken apart unceremoniously or perhaps with a little ceremony. But this is the the first. Ever triple seven WA zero zero one, the first one built. It stayed with Boeing for a while and eventually went to Cathay uh, and flew its last revenue flight from Osaka to Hong Kong on the thirty first of May. Then very next day, it turned around and, and flew into storage. Yeah. So this is uh, how old is this thing now? It's twenty three. It is twenty three. Yeah, twenty three yep. years, almost exactly. June nineteen ninety four. Yep. So it, it lasted. It lasted a while, and, uh, and and was flown extremely hard in its early years, and, and then and then found life uh, with Cathay. Now they're done with it, as as they pair back their older fleet and, and say goodbye. So that's uh, a bit of a I don't know mel- melancholy note uh, there. It's time. It's time. It's time for Ken. I think yes. Okay. So Ken has gas and he's going to explain why. And how much of it. And how much of it. We like to bring uh, Captain Ken Hoke, who is a uh, 757-767 captain at, at UPS Airlines. And he he has a gift for explaining things uh, very clearly and very understandably and, and with a, a good sense of humor. And he always adds some sound effects. Which is uh, which is I think my favorite part. So we asked Ken to, to you know think about some things that that might be outside the realm of uh, general understanding, and, and Ken came back to us and, and said, "Let's talk about fuel." And so he's going to explain uh, how much and why and, and how all of that works as far as fuel regulations and how fuel fueling is done 
and you know how much fuel is put on an airplane and, and why. And Ken's going to explain that much better than I just did. So we'll we'll let Ken uh, Ken get into it right now. How much fuel do airliners need for a flight? And who decides? First, the disclaimer. This is general information that covers most U.S.-based scheduled carriers. There are different rules and exceptions for different types of airlines. Airlines based in other countries have their own similar rules. When planning a flight, the dispatcher first determines if an alternate airport is necessary. If the destination weather is bad, the flight will need an alternate with good weather. This gives the flight crew a place to go if they can't land at the destination. Domestic Rules For U.S. carriers, domestic flights operate within the lower 48 states. Domestic flights need enough fuel to fly to the destination, then fly to the alternate if it's needed, plus fly an additional 45 minutes at normal cruise. Flag operations have different rules. The term flag means flights that fly outside of the 48 contiguous states. These are usually international flights. Flag flights need enough fuel to fly to the destination, plus an additional 10% of that amount, then fuel to fly to the alternate airport if it's needed, and finally, fuel to fly in a holding pattern for 30 minutes. If an alternate airport is not needed, flag flights need fuel to fly to the destination, plus an additional two hours flying at normal cruise. The FAA will sometimes grant authority to use domestic rules for certain flag flights. For instance, a short flight from New York to Toronto, Ontario might be planned using domestic rules. This saves the airline from having to carry a lot of extra fuel. Dispatchers plan the same flights every day, so they know when and where delays happen, and they do a good job of adjusting fuel loads when needed. If a flight is scheduled to land at a busy airport during rush hour, the dispatcher may include extra fuel for in-flight delays or long taxi times. They'll also add extra fuel if there's bad weather on the route. Instead of calculating all this, why not just fill up the tanks and give every flight tons of extra fuel? The answer is cost. An aircraft has to burn more fuel to carry more fuel. There's another reason why we don't top off the tanks. Airplanes have weight limits. It doesn't matter if the weight comes from passengers, cargo, fuel, or in-flight magazines. Carrying extra fuel often reduces the amount of passengers and cargo that can be carried. Regulations state that the captain and the dispatcher have joint responsibility for the safety of the flight. Before departure, the captain reviews the paperwork. If satisfied with the flight plan and the fuel load, he or she signs the document and it becomes a legal agreement between captain and dispatcher. Most flights depart with the fuel recommended by the dispatcher. Every once in a while, the captain may want to add some fuel. To make the change, the captain contacts the dispatcher, and they agree on a reasonable fuel load. The fuel truck operator can now pump the correct amount of fuel into the plane, and the flight can depart. And now we know exactly how fuel gets on board 
and, and why how much fuel is on board an airplane. I feel so much smarter now. <laughs> I feel like every time every time we listen to Ken, we we learn our learning is not proportional to to how much how much he's telling yeah. us. So I, I feel I feel very good about that. The best part is we didn't even ask him for this one. He just did it and emailed it to us and it's fantastic. <laughs> So thank you, Ken, and we'll keep them coming. And if you have suggestions for for things that you want to learn about, things like you know how much fuel goes on a plane, or uh, you know what are those little lights out there, or um, that's a UFO. You know, I saw something, and <laughs> I meant like on the airfield. I should have been more specific. Things like that. Or if you have any questions about aviation at all, send them to us at podcast at fr24.com or uh, drop us a note on on Twitter or Facebook, Flight Radar 24, and we will do our very best to either answer those ourselves or more than likely we'll ask somebody who actually knows what they're talking about and, and beg them to answer. Yep. <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop before we, we give away any, any more information about how little we actually yeah, know. Yeah. Nobody must know our terrible secret. Thank you everyone so much for listening 33 episodes in if you have suggestions questions comments send us an email or or even better go on uh, if you find the podcast on iTunes like I know many of you do uh, head to iTunes and, and leave us a rating or a review or both preferably so that you can help more people find the podcast uh, we're always trying to expand the audience so that even more people can become av geeks like us so that we have you know more people to talk to but also more people to talk with so thank you so much for listening we'll talk to you soon bye bye <music>